Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 434 featuring Michelle Munson, who is the CEO and co-founder of Illuvio, uh, at a fascinating company, uh, which is a Web3 company, Web3 distribution company for uh, the film industry and, and much more, any kind of content, really. Uh, fascinating stuff. I actually uh, got to meet her at the Hollywood Professional Association back in the uh, springtime, but I wasn't able to get time with her until much more recently and record this podcast, which I was really looking forward to. Uh, what is Livio? It's, it is, as I mentioned, a, a content distribution platform under a Web3 uh, avail availability or a Web3 umbrella and uh, really, really interesting. Lots of things that you can do. Uh, Michelle is a fascinating person, a very, very bright person. And in fact, I will give you guys a fair warning this is a fairly very technical conversation that i had with her especially around the areas of how web3 and networking and distribution works uh she was actually uh back in the day she was one of the founders of aspera that she later sold to ibm uh and it was really interesting to see that history a little bit as well uh so it was really cool to see this uh they've actually done some incredible uh, uh nft packages uh in partnership with uh warner brothers for the lord of the rings package as well as for uh the new Superman or the Superman 1978 version uh, that was uh, done more recently. Uh, really interesting to see her thoughts on that, especially in the NFT bubble and how that sort of how she fits within that area. It's really think about it more, especially in the, in the two examples that I gave with Warner Brothers. Think of it more as a, a very sophisticated uh, digital uh, version of a box set that you would get, like a box set or DVD, Blu-rays, things of that nature, except this all lives within the cloud or within Web3 encrypted blockchain, uh, which is possible through their uh, content fabric protocol. Um, and it's really kind of cool because you think about ownerships of digital content and that's kind of something we get into and talk about as well. So really cool conversation around that. We also even talk about how this, what this means in terms of residuals for writers, for example, and in light of the strikes, this is kind of an interesting way of thinking about things as well. So fascinating to have her on. I would really appreciate all of the input and all the ideas that she has. Uh, so it's really good to see that. Okay, we have one big announcement that I'm very excited about. Vantage 2.0 is out. I could not be more excited. Uh, it is a great, great product. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Vantage is, Vantage is our real-time ray tracing solution uh, that works uh, with V-Ray. Uh, basically, you output V-Ray scene files and you can use Vantage to view them in real-time, fully ray traced, fully ray traced, no rasterization. And this is taking advantage of both uh, what we're doing with V-Ray as well as DXR. So really, really interesting thing to do. Now, what is new in Vantage 2? Uh, well, we've got a whole bunch of new things. We've got scene states that can be added. We've basically got no, more native control of lights where you can create and control lights more directly within Vantage. Uh, we have a, AD, <laughs> HDR support for HDR monitors, which is really exciting. We also have the ability to, uh, to support deforming meshes, which is very exciting. We have render elements that you can render. Uh, Multi-UV channel, which is a big, was a big request in the original Vantage. Um, and, uh, you know, the new NVIDIA upscaler and denoiser has been added uh, and a lot of things. And another big one that you guys may be surprised by. Yes, we now support AMD GPUs. If those AMD GPUs support DXR, we will be able to use those AMD GPUs. So the very exciting for you guys who own AMD GPUs, you will be able to check out Vantage. 
Really, really cool stuff. Okay, I mean, honestly speaking, this guys, this is a real game changer, especially for things like uh, previs and play blasts of any kind because of the way you can live link with Maya or Max or Houdini, whatever, inside of uh, Vantage and create these really great play blasts uh, natively within Vantage. It's really, really cool. And you can do all kinds of stuff with that. So definitely go check it out. Again, go to chaos.com to check out this uh, where all these new products are announced. And uh, Vantage 2 is a really great one. We have a bunch of videos on the subject and a whole lot more advantages that have been uh, and, and features that have been added to it. So very exciting. Okay, we have one announcement or two announcements that are coming up real soon, and that is that we are going to be in Australia. So if you are in Melbourne, we will be able you will be able to see us on July 13th. And if you are in Sydney, we'll be able to see us on July 18th. And this is brought to you by Digitour and StormFX. And uh, we are very excited about that. We're going to do a deep dive into the ArcVis landscape uh, today and see where that, you know, see where things have changed and have that conversation. So you can go to chaos.com slash event to get all the uh, news on that. So again, that is chaos.com slash events. Uh, now, if you want to know more about the podcast, of course, you can just go to chaos.com uh, slash CG Garage Podcast. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast. Uh, and of course, you can always watch us. We would love to see you. Uh, and that is at uh, uh, youtube.com slash chaos group TV, where all of our videos are, including the podcast. And of course, if you have any ideas or suggestions about the podcast, we've gotten some great ones recently. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us, labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 434 with Michelle Munson. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the Chaos Group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. I was very interested in seeing, uh, talking to you after I went to uh, HPA because I was like, oh, hold on a second. Because I did a lot of research on Web3 stuff uh, last few years and I was seeing you're, you, <laughs> you're holding strong. That's the number one thing. And you've got some very interesting ideas that's happening and you have some incredibly interesting experience uh, to back up all of that, uh, all their knowledge. So I'm very interested to, to pick your brain on that. Um, but if, before we start, let's sort of get a little, give everyone a little bit of background on yourself. You obviously have an interest in uh, software engineering and have been doing that. Where did that, where did that all start? Where did your interest in computers and, and, uh, and, uh, software engineering start? Oh, sure. Well, hey, Chris, thanks again for having me. Um, so yeah, this is sort of a kind of a, a lifetime thing for me. Um, I studied engineering in college and grad school, uh, electrical engineering and physics as an undergrad, computer science and my, for my master's. I left my PhD like a lot of people, moved to the Bay Area, fell in with a bunch of people at UC Berkeley and got in the startup craze that really launched streaming on the internet, honestly. Right. And um, I you know, know how old I am. I started working in about 2000, a little before that. And um, 
That was my first startup, um, started by a professor at UC Berkeley. I was a software engineer, and we were making the first overlay multicast networks to deliver content before streaming was really possible. And uh, the kind of meltdowns that would happen back in those days were hilarious because they would be like with um, very small numbers of people, uh, even though the internet was supposed to be this uh, very capable mechanism for, uh, for, for delivering all this content. And then on top of it, the audiences would also not be very big. It was well before anything was mainstream. So that was my beginning. And um, I also would say on the other side, I fell in love with the internet like a lot of people when I encountered it. Um, I'm actually a farm kid. I grew up in Kansas and Mm -hmm. uh, my father, uh, who just passed away, unfortunately, this year, was uh, eight years old, was a um, sixth generation. My my generation is seventh generation Kansas farm family. And uh, my mom was a professor at the university in uh, textiles. So nobody in uh, exactly what I did. But Mm -hmm. the reason I'm saying all this is because um, the internet um, really started to become mainstream when I was graduating from college. And I just um, fell in love with it as a, you know, what the web seemed to be in terms of unlocking information for everybody. And I recall, this is kind of a funny story. Um, my, um, it was my, what was it? Energy conversion class of all things. The professor said, go to Netscape and write, come up, uh, write a, a, a end, of pro, end of class paper on some topic around energy conversion. And of course I wrote the paper, but what I was more fascinated with was doing all the research. Was uh, Netscape. <laughs> time. Exactly. And um, I decided that I was going to kind of shift from EE and physics or much more on the lower level side, obviously. And I decided to shift to computer science for grad school. I had to really scramble to get my coding skills to a point that they were good enough for professional work out here in the Valley. And um, in the end, um, my sort of appetite for creating new things and sort of looking across disciplines gave me a lot of options um, and I think drive to, you know, build my first company, Aspera, which um, is equally interesting in content, but a thing of its time. Uh, it's a high-speed file transfer protocol. For, yep. um, very very familiar with it. <laughs> yeah, reliable data transfer. Um, I actually invented that along with one of my colleagues um, when I was 30 years old. Um, it's a long story as to how I came up with this idea, but um, that was my first foray and then built that company very naively, but fortunately successfully sold it to IBM, which is a whole nother chapter. Right. Uh, we'll have a podcast about that one day. Yeah, I'm curious <laughs> about I'm curious about that because obviously this is such an important an important part of what you you've done is is being yeah. able to figure out how to transfer huge amounts of data over different yeah, protocols. <laughs> de- definitely, but one thing I do want to say is Alluvio is something entirely different. It's a fully decentralized um, approach to the whole problem space, and it has many ideas from Sherbon and some of my other colleagues. It's a much wider and bigger technology than Aspera FASP. FASP was a bulk data transfer technology, so in that Absolutely. way, they're, they're kind of two different chapters. But to your point, yes, I do have a special interest, and so I have 
have a, like many people, I have a set of core colleagues I've worked with for a long time, and we're all really quite interested in what you can do in application protocols to be able to solve the problems of content over the internet. And the reason we think content's so interesting is it's the hard stuff, all right? First of all, it makes up most of the internet traffic. Everybody knows that video is virtually all the bytes that flow over the internet. Um, And then, and it's also such an integral part of the applications of the internet. I mean, uh, the, the, everything we consider media or valuable data is, is large form content. Um, and, and that's been really something that's driven my interest all the way through my entire career. And the long story short about Alluvio is that because of all my exposure through Aspera and Siobhan, Lucas, Michael, the other people that helped get this thing off the ground through the supply chain of what was going on with video, the CDNs, we had to integrate Aspera into the CDNs. Um, Honestly, we thought this is really terrible. I mean, what people are going through is so restrictive in terms of the architecture and it hasn't changed in mm-hmm. 20 years. Like um, literally my entire you know career since graduate school, same CDNs. And then the clouds came along and did a certain thing to um, large form content, real time video. And we had the idea that, you know, maybe we could really make a dent on this in a big way. And then we also fell in love with blockchains because of all their fantastic properties and decided to make the content fabric a blockchain. So, I mean, it's a whole cloth invention uh, from the ground up for decentralized um, large form content, storage, distribution, streaming, ownership. Um, Personally speaking, uh, because I've been around this stuff for a long time, I'm really motivated to have an impact societally with this so that it can economically really unlock um, uh, the efficiencies of utility network. I, I really care about that. And so I've spent a lot of time on this working the ecosystem and, you know, making sure that the applications we're bringing out resonate with the consumer, right? Which isn't always easy. Um, tomorrow sure. we're doing Superman, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And yep. uh, I'm sitting here trying to finish all the details for that. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I was told about that. I was going to get to that. But I yeah. want to sort of you know, help the audience a little bit because our audience can be very technical and some of them cannot be so technical, but I want to help them a little bit through that. And we talked sure. about, obviously, you know, you fell in love with Web 1, right? Which is yeah, what totally. I fell in love with. Web 1, Web 2, and now Web 3. Web 3, right, exactly. <laughs> so I was definitely sort of enamored, like, what does this all mean when all this data was on there? And I was using... Yeah the internet before I knew it was called the internet when I was, yeah. you know, it was, it was just EDUs before dot com. <laughs> yes. so. And, uh, and I was sort of interested about how we could transfer data from place to, to place. And that was kind mm-hmm. of a fascinating thing. And just the idea of FTP was cool to me, you know, yeah. and the spare is obviously a very <laughs> fancy FTP. You could say it in a very interesting way, but the, the, the idea of, of decentralized has always been sort of something that has been, part of the internet that we've talked about in some ways. And so somehow web two turned into a highly centralized, highly wild walled garden system. Mm -hmm. Uh, What, what do you think caused that? Oh, um, well, first of all, I don't know that I'm the authority on this, but I certainly have a point of view um, from what the career that I've lived. I think two big factors, big factor number one is just the nature of the state of the art and the technology. The internet during that era was really only mature and capable of creating sort of like these 
verticalized sort of application stacks. And that's the reason we ended ended up with that. Second was the economic forces. There is no doubt that all of the massive wealth engine that has driven the internet came from certain sort of breakthrough applications like search, for example, Um, and then some to a certain degree streaming video, right? Netflix, for example, um, arguably uh, then drove some infrastructure sort of uh, contributions like cloud computing, which really um, all, and then of course the Apple ecosystem, the device ecosystem, the personal device ecosystem, right? Uh, All of those, um, you know, economically also favored or doubled down, continued to leverage a centralized model. And then the social data side just kind of blew it all up. And you put that together and you, I think you end up with a combination, what I'm basically saying is here's the nature of the technology and its maturity at the time that really led to these verticalized approaches, which then given the economics started to double down on themselves and just become stronger and stronger and more um, centralized, if you will, in architecture. And and by the way, centralized architectures are just easier. Um, (laughs) Reality is if you get down to it, that you need certain things to be true to do what we're doing now in the content fabric. For one, which has nothing to do with blockchains, compute had to get really cheap. It just really had to go down and right. cost, right? Um, that's number one. The the and just to change the balance of whether a decentralized architecture, a decentralized architecture could really start to, um, with the right software, could really start to substitute for a more you know sort of classical design. I think the the second thing, right? That's that's maybe on the the push side, on the pull side. Also, I think there that along with that, um, what we're seeing in Web three is also a function of the times. People people's appetite, the pull from um, society, has changed to the point that people's values have started to align more with uh, decentralized freedom due to what the you know sort of experience has been with. Uh, uh, particularly the use of people's personal data. And of course, um, you know, if you take a, a really on the blockchain side, you take a, a, a the view of people that are in decentralized finance heavily. I mean, the point of view there is similar that we really should be free of institutional, you know, intermediaries for, uh, you know, just control. And so I think it's a combination of, of the, what's possible in the times and also uh, the d- demand from from people, both of which shape each other. Um, one thing else I would like to say about the shift that's occurred that would sort of open up to your point, the, the transition from Web 2 to Web 3 um, is the fact that we are at what I would call sort of generation at least two plus, maybe generation three in video technology. And that's something that's very specific to our domain as video engineers, which is that we've been doing video since I, you know, uh, was in grad school. And Mm -hmm. um, the first wave of that was barely to get streaming to work. The second wave was to get streaming to scale, but brute force. And if you get into the kind of video technology that we've created, Um, with the content fabric, then to be able to sort of unlock that for a new type of content native sort of distribution that's much more efficient and also much more flexible in terms of what what it can do. And and I'm from the technical side, you know, 
as all things, innovation has to go along at an evolutionary path. I mean, what, what was done before makes possible the discoveries of the next wave. And we sure. are definitely enabled by, you know, the limitations of what has been, right? And, and so that's, I think, a, a particular factor of, of uh, the content fabric. And then, then there's a lot to say about the timing now for blockchains. Blockchains as technology have become mature and um, that also provides a gateway to thinking about state in large-scale distributed systems differently than we did in Web 2. And I, to your question, one of the hallmarks of the previous generation that kept these very centralized kinds of architectures was that you there weren't really great... Um, the best that we did in that generation was um, distributed databases. We certainly didn't advance to the point of decentralized data, right? And um, right. That, that has a lot of limitations in terms of how you can get throughput, how you can get consistency. I mean, there's the classic cap theorem, right, uh, which defines the, uh, the trade-offs between the availability of, 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 of data and the, you know, basically capacity and throughput, right? So... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, consistency, right? I should say. Sure, 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 sure. But let's let, let's give people a little bit of an overview as to 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 what uh, what uh, Eluvio uh, does. So, w w give us an idea, because obviously, there's been a lot of sort of Web three companies that have come along and have tried to present themselves as a Web three studio or this or, or whatever it happens to be, or platform, or the way that they presented themselves over time. But what what is what is your idea? That's, that's around what you guys provide? Well, um, first and foremost, we started this from your questions, Chris, looking at what would be the needs of content over the internet, not so much Web3 specifically, right? Right. And um, the, the, the whole idea for the fabric is to really make possible um, video and other large form content at scale so that it would be cheap enough for anybody to be able to distribute their own content that the internet at large could actually scale with it and that we're not um, uh, duplicating so much of the core bandwidth use that's going on and we can actually scale that. And then thirdly, we can make possible the creative ranges that people would like to have um, through the you know dynamic nature of, of being able to have programmable media. Those are all the things that Fabric's really about. Next generation of, of video and interactive content over the internet enabling creators. And if that's that, doing it on your own platform where you're not tied to YouTube a, or whatever, yeah, right? Doing it as a decentralized protocol that's open, that runs right. on a network of nodes, um, that is uh, infinitely extensible, meaning it can get as big as necessary in terms of right. the number of nodes and the amount of content. And also that is so efficient, so good at what it does that it delivers premium quality, high, you know, really high quality, but does it at a cost point that opens up the possibilities for, you know, kinds of distributions that don't have to have really big audiences to still make money, right? That's, okay. that's the whole premise of the content fabric. And um, then to your point, right, when you start to layer on Web3, I mean, the one of the key tenets of blockchains is that there's native provenance, right? If you are on the blockchain, you own your data, you own what you've published. One of the things the fabric has done that has never been done before in content is give a blockchain life cycle to the content ownership. Meaning that when you publish content into the fabric, you actually cryptographically own it due to your, the encryption and the base of that from your blockchain keys. 
And then the encryption algorithm end-to-end ensures that anybody who's playing out some derivative of it or accessing some derivative is not only authorized through its contract, they're getting the version that's been recorded in that contract, so it can't be tampered with. And then finally, the cryptography just re-encrypts it for them, meaning that they someone can't pretend to be them and get access or it can't mm. be stolen, right? Um, and that whole cycle is something that's never existed before. It goes along with the efficiency to say, hey, we can really have a creator economy for the first time. Big publisher, small publisher, you can self-publish your content. You can do it with integrity and with ownership control. Somebody else can be your audience and they can also share in the ownership. None of that can be compromised. And then finally, you take out the middle parties. So you make it much more efficient to do, right? That's that's where the blockchain side comes in. And um, as far as what we've been doing with it, um, fortunately, content providers are figuring that out. And we, we have some really fantastic projects. I mean, it's still relatively early days, but... I mean, you caught me on this day. We're launching our second major Web3 movie, right? Superman tomorrow. <laughs> I know, I know, so, I know. And, uh, and, and by the time this comes out, it'll be out. So, which is yeah, which is great. Yeah. So, but the one I the one I remember that makes you sense, right? Yeah, yeah I, the one I remembered you presenting uh, at HPA was the was the Lord of the Rings one, right? Yeah, so was, we Lord of the Rings was the first one that we did in this format. And um, so, to be clear, we don't make the creative work. The Alluvio. Um, Content Fabric as a blockchain platform provides the, the storage, serving, streaming, authorization, tokenization of the content. Warner mm-hmm. Brothers, in this case, makes everything and owns everything. Sure. And, um, and then the point of this, it, these kinds of experiences is to, number one, um, unlock something all new for the fan, right? These sure. things have a unique format. They are NFTs and they're all bundled together. They have interactive content and full-length movie and all that. The other is also to give people the opportunity to engage continuously with um, their ownership. I mean, they own these NFTs that then become utility entitlement to uh, new unlockable content. And we, the fabric works really well for enabling those things. So it's a new vehicle for creativity. Right, right, right. But just to give you an example, if I'm going to buy, you know, the Lord of the Rings uh, a Lord of the Rings NFT, it does come with the actual movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. Not, right. NFTs don't always come with that. No, and, and what's important is it isn't just like it's an NFT unlock. The actual, mm-hmm. this is what I was saying. I know it gets really heavy and it sounds sure. like, oh, geez, will she ever stop talking about this? Yeah. But it's really, really, really important to, that the encryption and provenance of the content actually be have an on-chain uh, mechanism. And right. that's what the content fabric protocol does. So when you own the token, you're not just getting this unlock to some web, web two hosted content that exactly. someone else can take or that, you know, can be basically repurposed some other way. Instead, what you're getting is direct authorization to the content objects through the blockchain, which does all of its you know, decryption and encryption for you, all that DRM under the control of the blockchain contracts for the object. It's the the actual uh, bundle, if you will. There's a content object for the whole bundle. And then also the other thing is when you go and do something with what you have, you had NFT and that media experience, it's a meaningful transfer of ownership to the other party, meaning they're getting whatever that um, uh, NFT, um, whatever rights it gives to the content that's associated. And and lastly, it's also extremely flexible. 
And um, one of the great things I feel is not only does it encode provenance and let you really sell, it also lets you do new things. And you've seen there's interactive experiences that are hosted in this way as lots of bonus footage, new stuff added on. But um, there's a new feature that will be part of this that's been advertised, so I can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's been talking about utility with NFTs. Well, these, um, the um, Superman um, uh, bundles, their NFTs in- include redeemable offers, which um, let you then go um, have a free claim to the DC Comics um, NFTs that are available through another project with Warner Brothers. And that's right. not just a sort of ticket kind of thing. There's an actual on-chain transaction for that redemption that's part of your NFT. And only you you and only you can can get it, right? So. Right. Yeah, and I think that's that's interesting. And obviously, you know, these were things that were talked about a, a, a great deal during the height of the NFT, uh, uh, you know, boom. But those have been that hype has sort of come down quite a bit. And I know you're you're, you're well aware of that. So, what caused that that change of of, of of reaction towards the NFTs at that time? And how do you feel that what you I know obviously what you guys have in terms of the protocol is very different than anything else I've been talking about, yeah. right? But but what do you think caused sort of like, oh, I'm supposed to get all this ownership in NFTs and all of a sudden all of that hype sort of like fizzled out in the last few years. But what, what caused that and what do you think makes what your guys are doing different than that? Well, it's really hard when you work in engineering all day long of your life for 20 years to yeah. not be smug and say that a lot of stuff just isn't real. Right. <laughs> That's the truth. There's right. a lot of stuff that's just hype. And um, I think there's there's a layer of that in response to what you are asking about, which is just because of the bubble, people were throwing themselves in and offering things and making things that were unsound or didn't really exist um, or couldn't do very much, right? Sure. Or all of the above, right? right. Or were risky or and all of that. So that's fallen away because there isn't the bubble to prop that stuff up and whatnot, right? I think the second factor also that goes along with your question is just the natural maturation of new technology, right? Um, Which is that inevitably, I mean, that's where innovation bubbles always, I mean, they books say this and what I've experienced, you know, 2000 was the same way. There is this period of time where, a lot of people are trying to use the technology superficially, right? It's not there yet in terms of most implementations or use cases. And so it gets, you know, that anticipation and hype, and then it falls off, right? And uh, I think the difference, what I'm trying to say here is that this is a substantial technology that does the the functions that we're trying to achieve, which I think actually have real value. And um, then the rest is, is really having the opportunity to work with good use cases that make sense that can allow people to, to start to enjoy the applications and whatnot. So one thing that's going on right now is a lot of experimentation around being able to offer new content in combination for formats like this to look at what would the consumer really like to have in terms of exclusive offers. And then um, also to, uh, you know, uh, see how far that you would as an, creative IP owner, you would like your users to participate in co-owners, right? And I think those things are all being tested by small and big uh, creators. And uh, one thing I wanted to say is 
just as an example, while you know we're launching Superman tomorrow with a major Hollywood studio, at the same time, last Saturday night, we hosted a live streaming show on the platform for, um, I, di- I didn't know the singer myself, but Pi Sonark, they have a series and they did a terrific job. And that was to a, you know, a small audience. It's a totally independent sort of event, sure. right? And what I'm trying to say here is that I think when the true applications of the technology are able to actually exploit it, right? That's when you have that staying power that you're asking about that, that allows the, the, uh, that, you know, the, the tech to really, to, to really work for people. Lastly right. is ease of use. That's one more thing I wanted to say. And, I'm, I, and I was going to get to that. So let's get to that <laughs> a little bit. But before we get to that real quick, first of all, I want to say is like, I do believe you have something very special. And I do believe that you have something that's a little different, which I, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Thank you. But, uh, but I also think that there's something, you know, that, that is hard for people and that must be, and I'm, I'm wondering how, if you talk to the average person right now and you tell them about NFTs, it sounds like something you shouldn't trust, right? Oh, well, definitely. And I mean, having seen what people have seen at the, you know, the the crypto markets and particularly the FTX collapse, which terrified the world. I mean, how could you think anything but that, right? Right. And and that's where I think, and even today, um, this morning, Bloomberg, um, Brian Robertson, who's the you know head of Coinbase, is is sitting there in his blue suit being interviewed about the fact the SEC is suing Coinbase. I mean, right. we have a disastrous confusion in the United States in particular about blockchain technology and the soundness of what it can do versus the, you know, this sort of, I'd think very, um, what's the best way to put it, sort of, uh, you know, thin veneer around, um, you know, sort of um, crypto investing that that right. has been unfortunately led us into a place where a lot of terrific, solid um, projects and companies are uh, not able to actually do what they need to do. I think that's going to change to your point. And then um, uh, as far as non-fungible tokens go, really, if you get down to the technology, it's a great instrument for ownership. The idea of a, of a collectible that you're going to flip as some kind of digital real estate, right, is no different than the housing bubble where you're going to flip a house, right? It's as fake as that, right? And people know this, I think, instinctively. That's why I feel that even though, yes, it's uh, NFTs have gotten a bad name, I think over time, the sense of people as they see these solid use cases like what we're doing will come through, right? And we will move past this. So, but I do think to my earlier comments, we have to get a deeper and more sound understanding of blockchain technology, particularly in the United States, so that we're not holding back healthy and strong innovation and and the process of trying to remove the the, fraud and... and Sure. Sure, sure. I think I think absolutely absolutely is true, but I think there is a been a bit of a veil that's been put over things, that, and and there's incentive by large institutions to make sure that we don't trust blockchains because that would 
disrupt their banking systems or their entertainment yeah. systems or whatever although, although I think it's much less than people think. I think this is just pure ignorance. There's, I really feel there's, I, I really do mean that. I mean, yeah. I, I worked in, I've worked in the mainstream of technology my entire career. I think right. companies, many companies, many fantastic companies fully understand what blockchain technology can do. And also I think many, um, uh, you know, consumers either could, right, or do, right? And um, um, and that's where I think where we really have to just get the facts through and that also to um, your point that there's a small, I mean, I, I'm always trying to think positively about uh, uh, leadership, but there I think are a lot of even regulatory leaders and people in Congress that have much greater sense than the, the uh, you know, sort of, um, insanity of Gary Gensler, for example. Yeah. <laughs> it's been very hard to, to listen to congressional hearings about technology. <laughs> it's just painful. Uh, but okay, let's, let's get to a little bit, uh, in terms of, I want to think about, uh, what you, you guys are doing from two points of view. And I want to start from the point of view of, uh, someone who's going to purchase an NFT or purchase sure, a system, absolutely. right? Yeah. And so ownership of that of that thing. I mean, one thing that I have been frustrated with in the in the in uh, in, in terms of my content is that you know right now a lot of my content comes from streaming net services mm -hmm. uh, and or even quote unquote purchasing them <laughs> on either a Apple or Amazon or whatever, right? And that purchase is so not guaranteed that I still own that thing, or and also. Because of the way that licensing is being, you know, screwed around with by the media, by the entertainment industry, one movie that I was watching today may not be there tomorrow, and it ha and it yeah. happens all the time, right? Yes. So there, I've heard of a lot of people who are saying it's time to get back to Blu-rays mm -hmm. because at least I own something physical. So well, how how does what you do relate provide, to that, right? yeah. yeah relate to so that? I, I, maybe uh, getting back to Blu-rays is a little bit of a sad gimmick, right? I don't think that's what people are really looking for. We've sort of uh, outgrown this, but to your point, ownership is something that I think does mean something to people, your data and your media and your content. It also means something on the publisher side. One thing I did not understand deeply as I do now is that the IP holders, whether they are, you know, just in large intermediary or they're the original IP holders, um, their business depends upon preserving the value and extending the value of that, right? And I think on both sides, you have an opportunity with this kind of what's called, you know, electronic sell-through that is new, um, that's meaningful in a digital way that can be done as a lean back experience rather than just something that, uh, you know, feels like an NFT hooked onto a movie. Right. And right. also finally, I think it's, it's the first time we've seen the insert of a change and what you asked at the very beginning, that is number one, the relationship between the user and the content they're enjoying, Right. They can actually participate, own. They could even have their contributions go back into projects they care about, vice versa. They can get benefits from things, even if they're just commercial, right? They mm -hmm. can really control that relationship for the first time, 20 years, and have some meaning in that. It's been passive streaming for all, right. all of the, the, the time off of the Costco shelf, if you will. No offense to Costco, but sure. that's basically how it's been, right? So that goes away. And the other side 
which I do know well, um, and I did going into this because of Aspera, is that the content publishers, both the original owners and then also the publishers themselves, can achieve much greater profitability because they don't have, first of all, it's a much more efficient way to distribute right? Both in sure. terms of the utility network, you take away like 50 times the cost of CDN and AWS, right? And you also keep the revenue, right? And you put those two things together and you can start to change. It's no secret that the content publishers, large and small, have really struggled to be profitable, right? There's tons of streaming going on. It's just people aren't making money at it, right? right. Uh, at least not very many. So, um, and, and so I think the I. The value points here are really to make that relationship direct, get it really efficient, unlock, you know, the good things about ownership, start to, you know, like you said, make it possible to try, try um, to, you know, make the most of engagement where the, the, the fan or the owner is actually um, invested into what's what they're getting, right? And then to right. also unlock the efficiency of this new kind of creative distribution. And I am really excited because I have, be thanks to these new formats, I'm having conversations with people just talking about all kinds of experiments that they want to do in terms of new ways of reaching their, their fans and users. And I think it has tapped um, the new potential in the, the, what we think of as the, I mean, you can call it the creative economy, but the media industry. Okay. Okay. Now there's, uh, you know, right now, as you know, there's a, uh, a strike going on. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> right. And so that's been disrupted, uh, a lot in the in entertainment industry. And one of the big problems that people have, which I think uh, is residuals and how do content creators and IP holders and writers, Get, get part of the economy Absolutely. For, for, yeah. for what they're doing. So yeah. it seems to me that built into your system, yeah, that's everyone right. can get a piece of the pie. <laughs> that's right. But also tying back to one of your previous questions, you know, there's been all this promise that we're going to have royalty settlements on chain, that we're going to be able to have distributed payments on chain. Right. Sure. Um, that's been claimed by the blockchain community for the last five years. How many times have people stood up and said they're going, they're making a company that's going to do this? Right. The right. reality is the tech to do that really well is deep and takes a while. Right? right. I think the great thing here is that absolutely, I mean, that's the whole point of what we're doing here at Alluvio in terms of the upstream side of content ownership and and um, payments distribution. Um, and at NAB this year, after four and a half years of working hard on this, we are now have the full stack that allows us to compensate any number of stakeholders when a um, content offering is sold, authorized as a token on chain, non-fungible token, for example, mm -hmm. right? And to have that settlement happen instantly through a contract, right? What that does to fix the problems you're talking about is it gives you real technical means to scale it up, right? You can have any number of people involved. You don't have to have, again, pay for extra systems to do it. And then everybody gets their settlement at the time. So there's no like chasing down what, what you're owed and it's fully transparent, right? Mm. This is the first point in time in history that I know of where all of the ingredients are there to really do it, right? Which is, you know, getting to your point about why hasn't this happened in the internet before? Well, number one is just 
wasn't couldn't be done yet, right? Sure. <laughs> Technologically, right? Um, the second thing then is, I think, to your your point is, what is going to be the path to have that really scale up, really happen, go in, have have um, you know the supply chain actually adopt it? I think we're at the beginning of phases of them doing that, right? It will take a very long time um, uh, to get fully you know adopted in real terms, but uh, the the goods are there. And and then the second thing I feel that's really important about this is. Yes, there are going to be some of these sort of uh, you know black curtains that were that that are going to be opened up where some points in the supply chain that have basically been around for a long time because they haven't been exposed as being wasteful, inefficient, or in some cases even you know sort of fraudulent in mm-hmm. uh, keeping people's due monies. Right, those are going to fall away, but they're going to fall away systemically. Right, mm. they're going to fall away because. It can be done better, more efficiently, and faster this way, right? And I think that's where, that's the real change in this whole problem of the royalties or getting compensation to creators and whatnot. Um, and uh, I don't think it's going to happen top down ever. <laughs> that's my right. Point, right? Right. But but let's uh, let's talk about that that content because obviously, you know, if I look at one of the Lord of the Rings NFTs right now, they're not cheap. <laughs> No, but they're also not more than a bundled sort of special, right? $100 for the top thing, $30 for the um, uh, the standard, right? Sure. But it's not like I'm just paying my $15 a month to Netflix and I get whatever. Oh, but the same technology, <laughs> this is something I was going to say. So yeah, yeah. very same technology can allow you to have a subscription authorization to a bundle or an unlimited set of content. Right. Okay. So that's what I was trying to say is you don't have to just create collector's bundles and mint those as a single NFT in the case. And again, without this. So you could start your own Netflix through this platform. And that's, and and some of the projects we're working on are doing things just like that. Right. Right. Um, And I I think this is extremely important. Right. Um, uh, You asked about, you know, why does it matter to really have um, the provenance and ownership of the content and it's, you know, serving to be on chain. Well, that makes possible any kind of ownership model, whether it's right. um, owning it or unlocking it once, getting it for a certain time window, having an indefinite subscription, applying the ownership to a whole set of content, you name it. So it could look, the presentation can look just like another Netflix, another video store, or it can be something brand new that's like a whole bundle that you can own, like the right. Lord of the Rings and the Superman NFTs, right? But I'm curious, have, I mean, because... I'm sure but Netflix. Music, by the way, I forgot to mention that. I mean, this applies to music. I know, I know. Well, music. We'll, we'll we'll get to music in a second, but I just want to stick to like. I saw some of the graphs on your thing. Is like this storage. I mean, Netflix plays a huge amount of money to AWS for their storage. I'm sure they're built for. Well, AWS Netflix year. actually built their own. Um, uh, they have their uh, open caching protocol uh, CDN that they built themselves on their second generation to kind of break away from that, right? And, right. Um, that, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons to innovate the next step is that right. has its own limitations, right? Sure. Sure. So, but, but have you talked to some of those networks like, hey, you can use us as a system to, as a um, platform? Well, suffice to say, I mean, if you build something like we're building people in the space to come to us and ask sure. for those things, right? I think the key, though, when you look at the content fabric is the in-state isn't so much to replace just the infrastructure underneath right. that existing centralized model. But the it's ecosystem to make itself. possible direct distribution. Right. So what the fabric really changes in the long, I mean, of course, you can use it in that way, and it's it's 
efficient and works well. But the real change, I think, to what, what you've been asking about is that if you own the content and or if you are creating the content and you own the content, right, um, or you're a set of parties doing that, you can now use this to distribute directly. You don't need to set up a licensing business with this intermediary. And you are a consumer. You can just show up and pick what you want right. under which terms you want it, right? That's the real disruption in this that um, moves us past the last 20 years of passive you know, OTT streaming, in my opinion. Right. right. Well, what about that last problem? Because having your own distribution is not necessarily uh, as you know, it, it, it's, that's not the only problem, right? Like you want discoverability. You want discoverability, people to see. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. So like when I put a video up on YouTube, if I get 22 views, that's because YouTube is not promoting it. Right. <laughs> but if somehow for some magical reason, YouTube decides to push it to people, then all of a sudden get 3000 views. Get 3000 people watching <laughs> Right. And so how do you change it? How, what is, what is the discoverability? And also like, you know, you mentioned before, you don't necessarily have a huge amount of people looking at your stuff, but you're getting more value out of every person. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you, you asked the most important question of all, right? The whole reason the social advertising business has grown and kept hold on all the creative yes. economy is because it dictates the discoverability. Yes. Right. Yep. So the people try to gain it all the time. That's the, <laughs> the only yeah. way to really change that game, right. Is to turn that on its head. Right. Right. So, um, I'm not going to get into uh, a whole lot of detail in, in sort of, uh, you know, explaining what we think the future of this is. But um, I think the starting point of it yes. is just what you see us doing, right? There's a, a couple of pieces. Piece one is there are some brands that, you know, have their own discoverability because they're strong enough on their own that they don't need another portal. Right. So those are the big guys. And then I think the second point, right, to sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, tease into the, the, the question that you asked, which is, so how do you get people able to find the long tail of everything else or even want to go find the long tail of everything else? Our view is that you need to tap into what is inherently different about this cycle. And you said it in your last question, ownership. Why are people differently motivated when they, um, in this way, right, to discover and what sort of cycle of motivation could you tap into that's different? It's that in this sort of ownership world, you're more intrinsically motivated because you own the thing or you want to own the thing or you want to identify with the thing, right? right? So we think the way to drive discoverability is to utilize the blockchain primitives to help to amplify the benefits of ownership. And um, there are several things without getting a lot of details that we think are part of that stack um, that, you know, you will see future things from us that that, that exploits, right? Sure. Uh, toward, toward that idea, right? Now, nobody's ever successfully done this yet. Everything has been kind of like locked over in social media land, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
but nobody's ever before had the confluence of factors to kind of put it all together. So this is where, you know, I think um, we and our partners are really concentrated is if you can really get the content distribution happening, then um, what steps do you take to really um, reinforce the incentives around um, the natural incentives around ownership that then drive more and more people to want to look there as opposed to being, you know, just in the the passive ad consumption world, right? I think that's that's really the key. Yeah, I that, that's actually interesting you said that. I was I was actually brands thinking are about part of this by the way. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing. Yeah. It's not like advertising shouldn't be there. It's that something different again, brand identity is also like content identity, meaning that you like People like to identify with the things with the things that they like, right? And so, right. if one can amplify that that natural um, allegiance, right, uh, with the blockchain relationship, and you can imagine ways you might do that, it also becomes a new way for the brands, the content, and the the users who love those to form their relationship again right. without giving control of data and money to the social platform. Right, which is what's been controlling it so far. Yeah, exactly. So I know I was kind of vague in my answers to, to that, but it's it's um, uh, something we are definitely working on. Okay. And I know you can't give me all the answers, which is all totally yeah. fine, yeah. but I'm going to keep asking these questions because no, I'm passionate about it. Questions, that's, like the, that's like the next piece of Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah I'm sure. Right? Yeah. I'm sure. So one of the things, obviously, that's, you know, for a lot of people, the the, the pl- a platform of owning NFTs and the functionality, et cetera, et cetera, seems complicated when all they want to do is sit down and watch Shit's Creek, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay, that, that's a much easier answer. Right? Okay. But before we get into that, before we get into that, right now, obviously, there's a battle between the, the all these streaming networks are barely making any money or they're, or they're t- you know, things are not working out as financially as possible as they, as yeah. they thought it was. Yeah. And so a lot of platforms and distribution people are looking at fast networks, right? Yes. Which are free, uh, free ad-supported <laughs> Television. But you're not personalized. Again, you have no way nope. to control what's coming to you. Guess what? Um, you should ask me what I am working on. In this what are you area. working on? <laughs> <laughs> that very problem, right? Which gets right. to your last question is in this whole point about discoverability and getting the economics into people wanting to be with this kind of content. One of the big drivers is what you're seeing. Right. Right. And one of the big limitations, I mean, um, advertising is an important part of the monetization, but one of the big uh, downfalls, of course, you can't really personalize in the old way at scale. One great thing about the fabric is you can personalize infinitely without the cost that you normally would. Right. And then you can also add algorithms to that. And that is something that we're doing in live streaming content right now. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, And two, I think that kind of goes together with exactly this whole theme we're talking about is when you start to see the bulk of content shifting this way, then you start to see new monetization that's both, you know, getting the content to the user that they really want and is truly personalizable and is so dynamic that it reacts to the circumstances. Right. And and I don't I I don't mean hypothetically. I mean, we're in a game and there's a, a you know, the, the game is really close and there's growing crowds. So there's an opportunity to reach a lot more people. And then furthermore, we know from the wallet graphs, what certain people might actually like based on what they've gotten before. And then you've got this pool of content. So you can add an insertion point to the stream running stream dynamically, and then you can bind in content from that pool of content that is actually going to match up with the 
wallet watchers based on what what they have shown that they're interested in, right? And you can do that without having to retranscode the content and push it out to the CDN. You do it, do it on the fly in the network, right? That's how the fabric works. That's an application we are working on right now, actually. So right. yeah, to your point. Sorry, I got very excited about that, but uh, I, I love that you're excited about it. This is great. <laughs> Oh, it is uh, great. It, it is really great. But I think that's that's kind of foundation to your overall question of okay, so how do we really put this all together so that there could be a meaningful shift off of what has been the right. you know YouTube environment, right? Well, I don't want I want to own I don't even own my TV anymore. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, and I, I think the difference when we say and I think the the key with ownership psychologically isn't the mechanic of you know, uh, necessarily that, that you care that you carry the deed to your TV. It's that right. sense of identity that, that that's what I get. They own my identity. They, they, they watch everything I watch, right? Roku, yeah. I, Roku costs 40 bucks because they're watching everything I'm watching. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I, I don't necessarily want that feeling anymore and be nice. One of the things that got me the most excited about, you know, Owning your own identity on a Web3 blockchain sounds much nicer. My wallet is my wallet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and one thing that it's, I mean, that's actually real. And I do deal with our uh, tenant, what we call tenants, but our clients, users, media companies using our platform all the time about this is that it, it's a fantastic paradigm for, I think, what we're trying to get to, which is that, you know, your transactionality is transparent. It's your, it's clear what your wallet is doing, but your identity in relation to your wallet is under your control. You don't exactly. have to identify with your wallet at all if you don't want to, sure. right? Or you can bind your email address directly to it. And I, I think that's that's what puts this back in the hands of the the consumer in a way that answers so many of the you know privacy concerns. And it it works really well too because you don't have to worry about the leak. I mean, I, I can tell you, I, I always, be an engineer, I have to answer all these security questionnaires about where's the data, who's got access to it, right? And one of the great things about this kind of technology is that you can know what's going on and have good truth in the data without having to compromise people's identities or, or mm -hmm. private information together. They are not um, uh, conflated. So I think that's Do you a, think it will get to a point where it becomes much easier and much simpler, where people can think about it? Because right uh, now it no. does feel complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing, I mean, in, in, in sounds like an Alluvio commercial, but the reality <laughs> is when you sign on to your media wallet, right, you don't have the friction you have with trying to do something difficult with the crypto wallet and wait for mints to happen, right? That doesn't okay. happen. And then you mentioned like a lean back experience again, without getting into a lot of detail, maybe we can have another chat in a couple of months, right? <laughs> there, because the, the content authorization and the ownership is, is really just a matter of the the basic security primitives, right? If those are right, you can put those into all the environments that people are used to enjoying for entertainment, right? So it doesn't just have to be on your laptop, for example, right? And you don't have to be always connecting uh, to, you know, three or four external wallets, right? It, you can, as long as the, the signer for your wallet transactions is somewhere that is 
secure and that you can prove to it who you are, then you can have good transaction signing that makes it feel like any other kind of login. That's what we do. And then we're able to combine that with the content to make it easy on people. And then I think the next generation of this is that you're going to carry around your keys. I mean, this, I think this is obvious. I'm not saying anything that's, that's that, you know, sort of forward looking, but private keys are going to be built into your phone. I mean, yeah. it's, it's they're already it's, starting to do that. Right? And <laughs> yeah. so this whole idea of worrying about whether you're using MetaMask or Rainbow or, or any other, you know, signing wall, it's just going to fall away because all that really happens, this is where I think people overthink it, right? All that really happens in those um, transactions is that you bear a key, which used, you used to cryptographically sign on your behalf, just like in the real world, you sign with a a digital signature. The point is the cryptography, right, is where all the juice is. The key, right, of course, is a key, is a fundamental piece of data in that. But once you're there, I mean, that, that constitutes a way to, you know, sort of unlock what we think of as all of these wallet operations. And then, then the rest is, is seamless, right? So what I'm saying is that we could have a really, really simple experience that just constitutes signing the transaction. First of all, authenticating myself, who am I? And mm-hmm. signing a transaction. That's yeah. really all that needs to get done. Right? Yeah. And what are you guys, are you guys built on Ethereum or? or? Yes. So the content fabric protocol, uh, it incorporates, it's, it's really interesting. It's both content and blockchain. And if you look inside of it, if you store, if you were able to peer inside of the the software, you would see that it has a full stack Ethereum blockchain. And there's a layer two on top. Right. Um, Well, it's actually full stack. So we take work of Ethereum and actually uh, built it into the protocol. So it's, it's, you would think of it that way as full layer one, but it's application specific okay. because what the blockchain protocol does in the fabric, right, as a content protocol is allow us to implement the content lifecycle. That is right. the committing of new versions, right, and including their version hashes, the authorization of, of um, accessing and reading content, right? Sure. Um, and so basically it's a full stack Ethereum blockchain that is also a content protocol doing these things for content, right? And yep. and uh, one other thing I would say is why do we use um, uh, the Ethereum uh, uh, source code base? Well, a couple. One is it's the most mature. Uh, and yep. we started this, at least at that time, um, it was the most mature. We started the first, we made the first version of the protocol in 2018, right? So okay. this was when Ethereum was really the only option. One thing we have done that will put this into context is we have implemented a version of the content fabric protocol and we have a running test net that's actually built on Polkadot substrate, which is a whole new blockchain stack. Yes. And the protocol, interestingly, the top layer contracts interface for yes. the objects is all still EVM based, right? Because that's okay. what the whole world is used to. But the implementation if in the actual content fabric daemon is actually on substrate, and which is a vastly more scalable um, proof of stake based uh, a blockchain um, uh, protocol. And you're using proof of stake and Ethereum is also all proof of stake at this point. It, it, so. it is, but the one of the great differences in the um, substrate architecture is the scalability of the transaction throughput. It's uh, you know, it's three orders of magnitude beyond what 
Oh, uh, in, so in low latency. The, <laughs> any of the consensus protocols in in uh, the the mainline Ethereum base have have achieved yet. Um, right. You know, and I think we've found. I mean, there are applications like, for instance, a man, a, imagine large scale publishing where you know transactions on chain, right? And um, if those are uh, not uh, state channel style transactions, but if they're settled directly on chain, right, you you need extraordinary transaction throughput to really do that at the scale of mass internet publishing, right? right. And uh, one of the great things is that the sub, uh, substrate uh, core allows for that, right? Um, and as always happens with technology, blockchains keep advancing. So right now that is the state of the art. That's an I think we've done a good job as a content protocol company and engineering group in making sure that our architecture can be implemented on multiple different blockchain stacks. So our mainnet today is a full stack Ethereum based um, chain, mainnet mm-hmm. 955305. It has a, uh, all the RPC interfaces are full, fully EVM uh, based and would feel like mainnet Ethereum. Um, the Ethereum mainnet to anyone who uses it. In fact, uh, our registration on um, Chainlink actually looks just like mainnet Ethereum and you can interact and do all the contract functions you would on mainnet Ethereum. And then the um, next test net has the same EVM interface, but is built on substrate as its core. Right. So, so this is a, I think this is interesting information for people to see. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll keep, keep in that direction as we keep, as we keep going. Right. So all the videos on your site, those are all playing off of this. The fabric. Yeah. The thing is, when you look at every, all the sites delivered, all the video, even the websites, all that stuff comes from the fabric as a D app platform. There's no Akamai, no Fastly, no Amazon. Right. Right. That's pretty impressive. We serve everything. And it it plays really fast. (laughs) Yes, it does play really fast. It's part of the protocols. I know. That's what I want to make sure people realize that. We we do also serve the websites too. So one of the cool things is you, and for blockchain people who know the idea of of DApp platforms, right? All that you are experiencing there in the application is a single page app, right? Or if you're on a connected TV, a TV app that's talking directly to the fabric and it's, it's serving you everything. Right. right. There's no there's no um, database layer, so to speak. Right. Um, gotcha. You have an API layer that um, uh, for some of the marketplace functions and whatnot that has a database layer that itself talks to the fabric. No doubt. I mean, that's that's probably expected. Right. But behind everything is just that. Right. And most importantly, I think we might be the only people doing a, a, a application stack of this degree that's truly decentralized and it doesn't sit on top of AWS. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of amazing. What is, I mean, what about, what about just even the, the, the encoding? Are you just using a standard yeah, encoding? So, so there, there, <laughs> boy, these are so many good stories and all this, right? So I don't think a person would attempt something as ambitious as this technology earlier in their career. I mean, all of us or uh, I guess, old enough when we started this, we thought, okay, we're just going to go for it. We built a native video stack and it's inside of the QFAB protocol okay. um, using the AV libs like um, you would use in any of the FFmpeg based projects. Okay. But we built that native. Natively, rather than, you know, bolting on some existing video stack, 
right? Okay. Including FFmpeg itself, right? We didn't do right. that. Instead, we built this into the QFAB protocol and that actually um, runs on all the nodes. And so all the um, audio video encoding on playout from, but well, both the ingest encoding, right? Which creates the parts that sit around on the nodes and then the playout, which transcodes the parts and generates the manifest and the playable dash and HLS segments and all of that, that all happens in directly in that um, AV pipe layer within QFAB. And, and it, it does happen on demand upon request. Um, all the nodes can do it, which makes it fully decentralized. And, and all these uh, nodes are just scattered all over the... <laughs> yeah, they they are. Um, one thing I would say is m less like SETI at home and more like a blockchain network, right? Yeah, so, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's like, a, yeah. That's like right. That's right. And then um, the nodes have uh, IP bandwidth, right? So they're audience facing and have a, a good amount of bandwidth. And then... Uh, Obviously, we would like ever more node providers. So anybody interested in adding nodes to our network, please contact us. We're, <laughs> we're always excited about that. And, uh, but and then node providers also get paid too, right? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Um, I think that this um, scale that we're at now is um, really sort of, you know, moving to the next level where um, you've probably seen some of our business partnerships are with telcos that can mm -hmm. offer ever more bandwidth and, and node horsepower because um, when you want to go beyond, say, a million concurrent streams to something like 10 million, which are these bigger sort of concurrent live concurrent events like Super Bowl, um, you need even more capacity than the present fabric has. So we're, we've you know, really been working on that. So. And based on your latency, uh, what about live events like the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah, well, so the great thing, I mean, live end-to-end -end runs really well and is, um, I mean, this is one of the great parts of the real-time video. It's less than five seconds end-to-end -end everywhere you try to play out from ingest to the client sure. without having to do heavy lifting with low latency sorts of protocols. We, we do use fragmented MP4 segments, which are the, the, the you know, state-of-the-art in terms of MPEG encoding um, and uh, dash pack or um, CMAP packaging for dash and HLS. So, you, so that increases efficiency, but the rest is all the fabric and the pipelining that helps that to be true. So it's low latency for everybody is the bottom right. line. And you don't have to, the, the thing I know from, you know, video engineering side, that's rather important is you don't have to do brute force heavy lifting to get that. What I mean is that people don't necessarily realize that a lot of the low latency live streaming today is incredibly brute force in terms of how it's being accomplished. Mm. It's extremely costly. And in the fabric, um, what I described is the inherent performance without, you know, throwing machines at the problem or, um, you know, without having to implement a certain, a new kind of custom protocol between the CDN and the origin servers, which is with other um, downsides, which is what goes on a lot of the low latency video community. Yeah. Well, that's very exciting. I'm very excited about the content fabric protocol. I think it, what you guys are doing is really cool. Thank you. Uh, and I'm sure you're very tired and your brain is uh, is kind of mushy from all the Superman stuff that's about yeah, to happen. I was going to say, sorry if I was a, a, a little uh, uh, slow today, but um, hopefully... Oh, I do. You're definitely not slow. I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but no, I'm very excited about content. It, you know, And just the proof that you have studios like Warner Brothers that are looking at you and coming back to you, you know, proves that I think you guys are doing something really fantastic. Fantastic well, more, more power to the creators, right? In the end, all this stuff is just means to the end, right? So right. we're excited and hopefully 
hopefully everything will go well um, on this launch and then there'll be other movies to watch out for the rest of the year. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, having gone to your site, it seems like it would be very straightforward if you want to be an independent filmmaker and be able to use your platform. Try to do it. Absolutely. As a form of distribution. So that is uh, sort of a, and it is basically a turnkey system is from what I saw. Yeah. Uh, Yes. I think that um, everybody who has used it has successfully gotten to where they're trying to go. And I think you nailed it, Chris, the next wave is discovery. Uh, right. The technology works and it is turnkey. The thing you we have to do as a group is get all of the innovation right to put the ecosystem together. That's that's right. the real real point. And then once discovery happens, then people are then hopefully a word. It's another like, or, it, it's yeah. it, it's a, it's a totally different plane, right? Right. But, um, that's that's a tall order. Many factors in it, and uh, you asked. In, Fantastic questions. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being on and looking forward to seeing uh, Superman and also looking forward to seeing all the new innovations you guys are going to have in the next few months. Thanks you very much. I appreciate your time. 